Hey guys, this is Justin Charity from Damage Control. On this week's episode, we're going to be talking about the new Disney movie, A Wrinkle in Time, directed by Ava DuVernay. So we want you to check out Cam's review of the movie on TheRinger.com. And also, make sure you listen to the new Ringer podcast, The Recapables, covering the current season of Atlanta. The Recapables drops a new episode every Thursday. You can find them wherever you subscribe to podcasts. All right, now on to Damage Control. I'm Justin Charity. And I'm Cameron Collins. Welcome to Damage Control on the Channel 33 Network, a podcast where we unpack what upsets, excites, and divides us in popular culture. Today we're talking about Bruno Mars, the Puerto Rican, Filipino, Hawaiian, Ukrainian, Asian, etc. pop star who has suddenly become the subject of a difficult conversation about pop music, black music, and cultural appropriation. We're going to get through it. But first, we're going to talk about Disney's latest big budget release, A Wrinkle in Time a movie that has foundered at the box office, frustrated a lot of critics, and stuck its director, Ava DuVernay, at the heart of a high-stakes discussion of black filmmakers working in the studio system. Who are you? We are in search of warriors. Your father has done an extraordinary thing, but he may be in danger. Your father's alive. We believe he is. And the only one who can find him is you. You're kidding. Last week, Disney released Ava DuVernay's A Wrinkle in Time, an adaptation of Madeleine Lengel's classic 1962 novel starring, among others, the young actress Storm Reed, who's great, by the way, Gugu Mbatha-Ra, Chris Pine, Mindy Kaling, Reese Witherspoon, and you get a car, Oprah! Oprah! The movie, it should be said, is notable historically for being the first Hollywood movie directed by a black woman to have a budget of over $100 million. So that's a genuine milestone. Uh, Perhaps accordingly, though, there's been an interesting shadow conversation about the question of how we talk critically about this, by most accounts, not very good movie. (laughs) You saw it. You agree that it's... I think it's a decent movie is the thing. Interesting. Well, the movie has a 41% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is a green splat. Just get the chalk outline ready. But there have been other conversations. Marie Claire ran a piece called A Wrinkle in Time Isn't a Great Movie, but that's completely irrelevant, which sort of sums up a lot of the ways in which we have been wearing kid gloves a little bit in regard to how to talk about whether or not this movie is any good, given who made it, given who it is, quote unquote, for. And I just wanted to talk to you about this kind of conversation that we seem to be having regarding big historic projects by minority artists, how we talk about historical exclusion and then finally inclusion, but maybe the art isn't good. Cam, I like that phrase you use, shadow conversation. I like to think this is a podcast about shadow conversations. It is, I think. (laughs) Conceptually, that's what damage control is. But, but, you know, particularly because you, you know, you, you've done music criticism and I think this has come up there as well. Right. I've I've faced uh, like years ago, I faced a similar conundrum when like Kendrick Lamar released to Pimp a Butterfly, right? Where there was this sort of. <laughs> no, that is that is not a similar conundrum. <laughs> it is. But, but please no, no, continue. no, no, no. But in terms of the phenomenon you're describing, okay, right, okay. it's like this critical this critical phenomenon whereby an artist that appeals to a lot of critical sensibilities releases uh, an artwork that we decide is sort of challenging and that is sort of off like of conventional commercial sensibilities and there's a sort of rallying around it that seems to that seems to more so appreciate the artwork as 
a summation of a bunch of things that it represents more than it sort of seems right. to be engaging with the artwork as just a successful evocative piece of art right and that sort of this conversation in so much as there's a shadow conversation about a wrinkle in time right a kids movie is every every critic wants right. to point out is that it's a kids movie there's a lot of talking about the movie as um something that you really just got to be a kid to get it you know it's just that adults they won't understand it if adults don't like it it makes sense because it's just coded for children and children will love it and that's a weird way to think about kids movies in so much as like adults have all seen kids movies right and also like i'm an adult who watched moana i'm an adult who you know what i mean it's like right. i God darn it, I know what a good kids movie looks like. Sure, sure. I know what a conventionally great kids movie looks like. Sure. And people, critics seem to be sort of shielding Ava DuVernay from an ass- like an assessment along those lines of like an adult having a pretty straightforward take on whether there are problems with The Wrinkle in Time structurally, narratively, in terms of its characterizations. I, I don't know. Why, like, do you think it's about... It seems to me that it's a it's a protection of Ava DuVernay herself specifically. Right? Yeah. Well, you know, it it's complicated because when Selma came out, I also felt that there was a weird way in which critics were talking about that movie in terms of its importance to history, in terms of, you know, her importance. And these things are, just to double underline this, important. It is important that Ava DuVernay kind of went beyond the studio system to make Salma, like kind of took a script that wasn't heard, rejected even having like a, a screenwriter credit in order to be able to make this movie, even though she basically rehauled, overhauled that screenplay um, and should have gotten a credit for it. Um, you know, those things all matter. But Salma is a good movie. It's a really good movie. It's a movie that I like. It's a movie that I care about. There's a way in which reading a lot of the criticism, you wouldn't know what made it a good movie. Look for the extent to which critics were really talking about the aesthetics of this movie. Like, there's a way in which we have to talk about how we don't talk about the work of prominent Black and other artists, women artists, as art. We talk about them as historical pivot points, as log lines for demographic diversity in the industry, as they become means for criticism to sort of reverse its history of not caring about what work by black women, of not caring about work by, you know, minorities, et cetera. They become means for publications to finally hire a black freelancer to write a piece. Right. But they become data points. Right. It's a data point. Right. What but what about the movie? Like for me, I, like with you, I think there are actually some really interesting things about Wrinkle in Time. I don't think the movie works. But I think it's a fascinating yeah. blockbuster product. Let's let's get into that because okay, so Selma, good yes. movie. Yes, A Wrinkle in Time. Let's talk about the. You know what I mean? Because I don't want to do what I think a lot of the other criticism is doing, with the exception of your piece on the Ringer.com about A Wrinkle in Time. I want to talk a bit about the movie so to help people sort of understand yes. why the the reaction, the critical reception of the movie is maybe so uncomfortable. Yes, I mean, have you read the book? Did you go read the book? No, no, no. The book, I read it as a, a kid, um, and the book is, I think, monumental for many people. Again, it came out in 1962, and been, there's been really great writing about what that book in particular has meant to kind of little girls, little girls who like science. Um, it is a, you know, a female heroine at the center, 
it is not, I would say, explicitly feminist in the way that maybe if it were written today, it would have to be in order to make that case. It is more interesting in that it, you know, it is a female hero, but it's got all this biblical context and uh, it's just a good book. But DuVernay's take on it is interesting because she diversifies it in a way, you know, the, the original certainly would not, if you were casting the movie back in 1962, you would not have had Storm Reed as as the little girl, the center, right? Yeah, there's one thing that's really palpable about the movie. So me, right, as a person yeah. who has not read the book, even when I was sitting in the theater, I had this sense of, oh, there are decisions being made. There like, are I decisions. can tell that the, yes. this is this has a director's like thumb on it. Yes, very pointedly diverse, but I think more notably, frankly, it has got 21st century empowerment rhetoric. Yeah. So you attach Oprah to the project. It is basically to me like, <laughs> and, and and it's very Oprah. It's very, we're going to take some of the quotes of Mindy Kaling's character, for example. It's a character that uh, sort of speaks in quotes. We're going to add Hamilton. We're going to add Outcast. We're going to make it more you go girl than the book was. And I'm not saying any of this is bad. I think it's a decision. And I think it's, I think it's a pointed one and one that it's very much a movie that knows that it's the first of its kind. This is a $100 million movie aimed at Black girls, so it is doing important work in that regard. But I think it is possible to watch this movie and think, okay, uh, it's a little confused. You know, there's some there are some holes in the script. There's some emotional arcs that don't make sense. There's an extent to which the empowerment arc of it all sort of trumps everything about it that would otherwise befit logic. <laughs> yeah, or even characterization. Or even characterization. And those are all, as a critic, for me, that's interesting because it's it's a blockbuster. It's interesting to see the extent to which a blockbuster is meant to bend logic to to conform to sort of a mass appeal. And it's interesting to see a Disney movie trying to target black girls in the guise of something like mass appeal, because that is just not what studios have tended to mean by mass appeal. And that is interesting. And that is important. But the movie has a 41% rotten for a reason. I think it's just like, a, it's, a, it's a troubled movie. Why though, are we getting pieces that say it doesn't matter whether or not it's good? Right. I, I'm curious about this. Yeah, it's almost like it's a it almost feels like an instant, even though those pieces a lot of the time sort of deploy children or the idea of children as a human shield for the movie. Right. It almost feels like it's not giving kids enough credit either. Right. Like right. you like I've been a kid who's been girls. like, I didn't like this movie or I did like this movie. You know right. what I mean? It's sort of it is crediting children with a lack of discernment about wonder. It, which which ironically feels like a very adult thing to do, right? Is right. to sort of like simplify the mind of like a young adult to being like to having no discernment or taste whatsoever. Yeah, which is not exactly how being a kid works. I mean, totally, you know, totally. It just seems it, that's the weird thing in the criticism of the movie is that it's trying to posit a lot of things about how children think of art versus how adults think of art. Yes. But that criticism just doesn't seem like it understands children very well or movies very well. <laughs> right. And a thing about the criticism of the movie is that we live in an era where 
a lot of critics are mutual follows with Ava DuVernay on Twitter. Right. And I do think this is a factor. I think there's an extent soft to power. Which... Ava DuVernay's soft power on yeah, Twitter is and real. I don't yeah. think that's I don't think that's why she follows critics on Twitter. I think she follows critics on Twitter. Like I think she was following critics on Twitter before she got like, say, she's like a former publicist, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and she's like a person who likes movies. Right. But I think there's an extent to which there's we live in a culture of criticism where you have to be careful. You feel like you have to be careful. I don't know why the fear of God is in people that she might unfollow you on Twitter. God, like, <laughs> damn, I know that ruins your career. But like, but like, there's that. But there's also just, I think people find it hard to totally get the teeth out on something because this isn't just a movie. Like, you can't disentangle it from who we're saying the movie is for right so if you attack the movie you're attacking black girls you're attacking eva duvernay and i think there's also an element of if this movie doesn't do well what does that mean for her prospects making other large movies because historically if like a woman you know the woman like makes a big budget movie that doesn't do well it takes a minute like it took a minute for Catherine bigelow to recover from K-19, The Widowmaker. Elaine May never recovered from Ishtar, and Elaine May is one of the best American directors ever and one of the best screenwriters ever, and that ended her directorial career. Things like that absolutely happen. But still, I feel like if you think the movie's trash, I don't know, you know, like... Yeah, well, okay, here's what I'll say. As hard as it is to uncouple all of that stuff, it's also in a review. Yeah. Even if you're a critic and you're going to this movie and you maybe just didn't like it that much, but you're also trying to keep all of that historical context in mind and all that commercial context in mind. To me, in a way, it stinks just as much like the review as a as a thing, as a piece of criticism stinks just as much if you imbue it with this sort of homework core. Honestly, this is so important. You know what I mean? As if you had just written a pan. Yes. So that's what seems like is ill-advised about it. It's like, I don't actually think critics are doing the movie favors by talking about it as if it's a, as if it's their kids refrigerator scribbling. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're like, I, I think it's condescending. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it, like, I think a lot of the pieces that were written on Selma were condescending, uh, certainly on 12 years a slave were condescending like 12 years a slave, which was not by Ava DuVernay. It was by Steve McQueen, but one best picture, very well-regarded movie. But I don't think you know from many of the reviews of that film just what a weird movie it is. Steve McQueen is someone who's, whose background is beyond just art house in art, in art video installments. And a lot of that is in 12 Years a Slave. There's a strangeness to that movie where if you read a lot of the reviews, what you're mostly getting from a lot of reviews from many mainstream publications is not, this is a strange approach to this topic and it's fascinating for that reason. What you're getting is, this is, you know, this is a prestige picture that looks beautiful about slavery, that's doing a certain kind of historical work. And it is doing historical work. But we have a long take of someone hanging from a rope, like trying to be lynched in this movie uh, that people will mention but not wrestle with, like, in terms of the aesthetic weirdness of that. Right. And it's weird because, like, for the longest time, Selma, 12 Years a Slave, those are movies that I avoided. And I avoided them from this sort of, I mean, I think black thinkers talk about this a lot in popular culture. But I had this sort of suspicion that these were homework movies right, in a way. Right, right. And for the longest time, I just assumed that I was getting that vibe from the movie itself without even seeing it. And I think as more time passes, I'm realizing that the, the thing that creates that sense 
that sort of preemptively sours me on a movie or again, it's that stench, that critical stench I'm referring to is coming from the criticism. It's coming right. from the discourse and the fact that the discourse creates this sort of gloomy, condescending cloud around a thing that is actually more interesting than those critics are giving it credit for, even when they're trying to sort of do a weird boosterism about the movie. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, a movie like Sama is like, you know, you just can't talk about Sama at like your regular civil rights movie, because to me, it is a movie that is aware of civil rights movies and aware of the way that they become great man movies in particular, when you throw MLK in there. And this is adamantly a movie that's, that's not just an MLK movie. It's a movie about process. It's a movie about publicity. It's like, it's a movie that has images that are more interesting than the noble images you'd get in the Norman Jewison version of this story. The version of this story that would normally 20 years ago have been up for Oscars. Like it's a, it's a weirder movie than that, but you wouldn't know that from a lot of the criticism on it. Uh, I, w- I would say a, sim- a similar thing about A Wrinkle in Time is yes. that I think it's a, it's a weird movie. <laughs> Wrinkle Time is a weird movie it's for a, weird, a Disney movie. It, it definitely makes me super curious. Reason. makes me super curious about the books. Like I was, I was, uh, I saw it with a film. I saw it with Alison Wilmore at Buzzfeed and, that the whole the whole time I was just sitting there and thinking of the Wind Up Bird Chronicle, which is like right. my favorite novel ever. Right. And it's just that there's a depiction of evil in a wrinkle in time that just seems very like disembodied and psychedelic. And it's just very interesting. And it's a sort of depiction of evil that I've never really seen in a kid's movie. Right. Right. And it makes you it sort of takes you out of a Judeo-Christian context for even thinking of what evil is supposed to mean and how Absolutely. it's supposed to manifest on a screen or on a page. And that's a super interesting thing about the movie. That no criticism of it. Yeah. <laughs> well, because, you know, because then there's this other, there's this other pool of criticism that is aware of the extent to which a movie like A Wrinkle in Time won't, by many mainstream critics, be be talked about for its aesthetics. That, you know, this other form of criticism will double down on the bad things about it or the make assumptions about it uh, that also don't fit the movie because they're assuming it's just another bad kids movie. But again, Wrinkle in Time, I think it's worth seeing. I'm recommending it to people because it is strange. The first 20 minutes of this movie, the way that Ava DuVernay handles things like you know, school bullying, like the, just the shot selection, the ways that we see these kids, the, the hero poses, this is all very odd. If you've seen this kind of movie before, you've not seen images that give you that sort of rote, mechanical, YA setup which is what it is, like in a way that's as odd as what this is. Yeah. When By the time Reese Witherspoon shows up in their house with like a toga on and just looking at their stuff, it's like, this is this movie's fucked up. What is going on? <laughs> <laughs> like, she's just touching their things and this black family is like, what is this white lady doing? Or even the fact that like Mindy Kaling's first scene in the movie is sort of, she's beautifully framed in this strange house. Right. And then she has one line in the whole scene. And right. Otherwise, it's just, she's sort of sitting in the scene as if These nothing's sort of ethereal shots of her. Right. It's like, it's I mean, I, it's like a stoner movie for kids. Frankly. Right. It's totally, yeah. Totally. Uh, and and so why can't we, you know, this is just another thing, like, whether or not A Wrinkle in Time, like the, the Marie Claire headline of, like, it doesn't matter that the movie's bad is is in a way, right, because what matters is how weird it is to me, but wrong because the content of that article was more like it doesn't matter if it's bad because of who it's for. But I think that actually we should all want the standard to be high for movies that are targeted at young people, black people, women, et cetera. Like this idea that it doesn't matter whether or not a movie is good just because it's it's serving, a, a you know, an underserved audience 
does not jive with me because it seems that the assumption implicitly there is like, we can't find anyone good to make these movies. Yeah. So we're just going to go with the one, you know, just go with the crumbs. And I'm not calling a wrinkle in time crumbs. It is much more fascinating than that. Yes. But what I am saying is that that's, that's what I'm hearing when people say that. Yeah. There's a pernicious, there is a, a critical line these days that I hear a lot. I hear with increasing frequency and I don't like it. And I wish people would stop saying it. And I wish you would think about it. And the line is this, it's this idea that, Black people should get to make more mediocre art. Right? Yeah. And like get to emphasis on the get to. It's like black people should get to make flops and they should get to make mediocre yeah. art. And it's sort of I get the sentiment of it, but also I like to I like art too much to will right, <laughs> more right, mediocre, right. mediocre art into the world. And I also think that that's a, again, it's a sort of statement that while I understand the good intentions that are animated by the statement, it also seems like a backhanded way to talk about black creators yeah no but, well, because it's like so rather than giving us a chance to make you know the moonlight you just want us to make you want us to be you know the judd apatow you want us to be the john favreau like and it's just like what we really need to be saying is Black people, women, et cetera, et cetera, need to be able to make more movies. It is inevitable that some of those movies will be mediocre because mediocrity is common. Right, but you shouldn't strive for. But mediocrity. that's not what we're striving for. Right, right. That's not right, That's not the end game. But yeah, like black people should make, get to make more mediocre mediocre art in the sense that black people should get to make more art. Right, that is the end game. And some of them are going to be mediocre because, of course, there are mediocre black people. You know, we just talked about Donald Glover a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh my god i know i just i had to but ah. but but yeah um it's it's complicated it's like we need to learn how to talk about we need to learn how to talk about black art still listen ava made the 13th ava duvernay is still great hollywood you better give that girl another 100 million dollars and let her figure it out does is he takes pre-existing work and he just completely word for word recreates it extrapolates it he does not change it he does not improve upon it he does not make it better he's a karaoke singer he's a wedding singer he's the person you hire to do michael jackson and prince covers yet bruno mars has an album of the year grammy and prince never won an album of the wow. year wow so how are you gonna say wow. so how are you gonna say People that are originators, that are originators in the funk genre, that are originators in the R&B, the New Jack Swing. Bobby Brown and New Edition don't have no album of the year Grammy. Bruno Mars got that Grammy because white people love him because he's not black, period. The issue Facts. is we want our black culture from non-black bodies. Facts. And Bruno Mars Facts. is like, I'll give it to you. <laughs> okay, so you just heard Saren Sensei in a clip from a video series by The Grapevine. A clip from that video series went viral this past weekend, inspiring a wave of critique of the artist in question, Bruno Mars. So I should say six weeks ago at the Grammys, Bruno Mars beats Kendrick Lamar and Jay-Z for album of the year. His album, 24 Karat Magic, is a pretty familiar and, and characteristic blend of pop and funk and R&B influences and of all of the retro flavors that we all associate with Bruno Mars, smoothed out from modern pop sensibilities. I think it's a pretty good album, uh, and it's certainly a very popular album. But ever since Bruno Mars grabbed that album of the year at Jay and Kendrick's expense, he's, he's basically come due for a debate about cultural appropriation 
and Bruno Mars's relationship with black music. In that clip, Saren Sensei accuses Bruno Mars of cultural appropriation on a few levels uh, in his music, just in terms of what his influences are and what sounds he's working with, but also in his supposed racial ambiguity. So we should clarify that Bruno Mars, to a lot of people, because of his skin tone and because right. of his hair, I would say, right. looks like he could be a lot of ethnicities. He, yeah. And he, in fact, is a lot of ethnicities. He's Puerto Rican. He's Hispanic. He's Ukrainian. Uh, he's Hawaiian. He He's the, the combination of every ethnicity on earth except African-American. Right. So I'll tell you what. Let's play. I want us to play a bit of the finesse remix from 24 Karat Magic. Cardi B is also on the song. I think the finesse remix is a really good, potent example of Bruno's musical style and also the sense of him playing with genre and playing with sort of racial ambiguity and genre ambiguity. Right. So let's, I, we should play a point of comparison here. I think a lot about boys to men when I hear finesse. Sure. Um, Me too. Let's play Motown Philly. Okay, so I'd say by design, Cam, those are, those are pretty similar songs. Right. Right, not in a Bruno Mars is a plagiarist sense, but just in a he's clearly channeling a certain defunct era. New Jack Swing is a sound. Right. Totally. And that's the sound of the song. Yeah. And he clearly grew up on that sound. And right. he talks a lot about New Jack Swing artists. He talks a lot about basically all post MJ Absolutely. black artists, post Quincy, post MJ. I should note that several black musicians, including Charlie Wilson, several black critics, including myself, uh, have rallied to defend Bruno from this particular line of criticism. This one hip hop sort of historian and critic that I like, Davy Cook, uh, wrote a really long but I thought persuasive Facebook note <laughs> about Bruno Mars. And <laughs> you got to love the Facebook criticism. No, but the, yeah. Facebook criticism is great. If you yeah. get like a real, a real old head who's just smart and can let it rip on Facebook and get like tens of thousands of likes on it. Right. But he, his, his note begins with this. Cultural appropriation is not a Puerto Rican Filipino kid named Bruno Mars coming up out of poverty and in a one in a million type move reaching stardom where he made noise dancing like James Brown or Michael Jackson over a Teddy Riley New Jack Swing inspired beat where he fully acknowledges his influences. Right. Which I think is an important part of the conversation about appropriation. Acknowledging one's influences right. is a key part of that conversation. Right. In that what people generally, historically, at least as I understand it, like I've called appropriation, um, does not do that. Yeah. I mean, it's not always a sufficient 
condition, right? I mean, Iggy Azalea is sort of back in the day, post Miley, right? Like Iggy is after Miley Cyrus, Iggy is the big cultural appropriation burglar. <laughs> and she, for the longest time, tried to be like, well, if I talk about Tupac in interviews a lot and talk about how he inspired me to become a rapper, you know, that'll get people off my case. And it only pe- made people more angry at Iggy Azalea, I think. <laughs> well, I think people were aware of the cynicism of that move. Right, right, right. Totally. <laughs> I, here's the thing, though. I think a lot of people are asking the wrong question. And I think the question they're asking is, is Bruno Mars a cultural appropriator? Right. Right. That's I mean, that's certainly that's the question Saren Sensei is asking. I think the boring answer to that question is, well, yeah, he is. The real question is, why is that bad? How is that bad? What level of cultural appropriation is he guilty of? And how do we determine what appropriation is acceptable and constructive versus what kind of cultural appropriation is exploitative and destructive and unjust? Because I would say nearly by his own admission, short of using the actual word appropriation, Bruno Mars is super, super honest about the music that he loves and grew up on and his channeling. But the thing that makes it not really scan as like boogeyman behavior is the fact that he, I mean, he works with black musicians. Like Bruno Mars is not the only credit. He's not the only credit on 24 Karat Magic when it wins album of the year. Right. He's not Elvis, right? Like he's not this person who is totally stripping the black influences away and pretending that they don't exist. Absolutely. And totally overwhelming and obscuring those influences. Like a lot of black artists are eating alongside Bruno Mars. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I can't help but see Bruno as a part of a wave of nostalgic art right now. Nostalgic commercial art. That is that is the bottom line of commercialism in America right now. It is nostalgia. And not to say that a music it didn't exist before this moment. Obviously it did, but I, I must say up front that Siren Sensei's version of this argument is better than a lot of the piggybacked versions of this argument. It's better than a lot of the versions that came before. Because I think one of the specific complaints here that is worth thinking about is the kind of success that Bruno's able to have that the artists that he's pulling from had to work for in a different way in order to get into the mainstream. There's absolutely a conversation to be had about how, like the things that Michael Jackson has to do in order to kind of get Grammy recognition. It's different than what Bruno apparently has to do. But still, I'm also like, yeah, but why are we bracing this on like the Grammy barometer? Like, I feel like, can we can we all just say that like the Grammys are trash, that they're stupid, that that should not be the measurement of mainstream success. It is not mainstream success. You know, it's like- Right, I, I, you can't compare him to Michael Jackson for me because every my- you're falling for the okie doke. The moment, yeah. the moment, even even if you are as sort of aggressive and outspoken and like radical as I think Saren Sensei is positioning herself, the fundamental undermining of her own position she does is being obsessed with the Grammys and white people in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And it's like once that's your starting gambit, you you can only pass yourself off as you can only pass your argument on rather off as so radical because its implicit premise is that the the Grammys have influence over my self-esteem and over like the esteem of this genre of music that realistically doesn't like it doesn't need it doesn't need the Grammys yeah I mean I mean particularly with the Grammys it's like you know it's one thing to say well Spike Lee never won an Oscar because that like the way that the Oscars function in the movie conversation is different than the way the Grammys function in the movie in, in the music conversation 
if you were to tell me how few how long it took like a Jackson to win a Grammy, I'd be like, oh, that's weird because the rest of us were already on it. Right. Totally. <laughs> yeah. I, we should clarify that, too. It's like there's real I feel like there's real money and opportunity tied up in the Oscars in a way yeah. that the Grammys. Absolutely not. The like, Grammys are the most worthless of the major. They're, you just like, I mean, I don't care how many Grammys Beyonce has. It doesn't it doesn't you know, the Grammys were only meaningful to me when Lauren Hill won. Yeah, and like the Grammys only reflect poorly on the Grammys, right? frankly. <laughs> frankly, but but it is an interesting, you know, this argument is just interesting to me because I guess from where I'm sitting, like it is it as you said when we started, it's like he is everything but black, I guess. But the fact that we have to go to ancestry.com to figure out that he's <laughs> yeah, not, that is true. That is that a, he's not black. I, I actually, did y'all know that before you looked at? You know, it's just uh, like. And, and and I guess to like a, a, to a great extent, it's like I think I don't want to just write it off as splitting hairs, but it's like he is so many more forms of minority than I. Am. Yeah, he's not white. He's right. more even more than he's not black. He's right. Very much it's not like it's white. like what does this guy have to do to earn a seat at the table of sort of minority produced music? I I get that we want to sort of protect the idea of like Black American music, yeah. but. But I also, when you add like the music that someone grows up listening to, and we we think about the ways that in every other sense, we are obsessed with people's influences. We are obsessed with understanding how they came to sound the way they sound and perform the way that they perform. And now all of a sudden we're using that against the guy. I, I don't know. It's like, you know how I feel about this, which is that I wish that we weren't pinning all this on Bruno Mars because I don't care about him. Yeah. So you <laughs> he, don't, yeah. He's, if he is an appropriator, he is not an interesting appropriator because for me, it's just nostalgic. Somebody, somebody, I forget who, put Bruno Mars' whole steez very neatly to me. And I like Bruno Mars. I actually like Bruno Mars a lot. They described him as really good at collage art. Ooh. <laughs> like his music is collage art. Sure. Even the best collage art is basically just, it's collage art. And, you know, I'm fine with that characterization. What I find frustrating is that the temperature of the conversation about cultural appropriation and all of those instances seems to fluctuate. And the nuance of those conversations seems to fluctuate. I'm trying to dice out how we got to this point, because the nuance, again, that rush of nuance seems very sudden to me. You know, it is sudden, and we're also at a moment when we are congratulating, for example, a show like Atlanta for what people are calling its sort of unique style, what I would call a pretty familiar white art house style. And we're like, we, we, we congratulate amalgamation when it's minorities appropriating from whiteness. We damn a non-black minority from appropriating from black art. I don't know that I'm, I don't know that I'm comfortable with this equation. Like I, I, I'm not interested in saying that a person of color cannot perform black music. Well, I'll tell you what. I think that there I think the real problem is that there are two different conversations that are sort of stapled together and no one ever unstaples. And I think there's a conversation about art and how sort of culture flows. Yes. Right? Yes, absolutely and power. Right. Well, yeah, so like well, let's let's put this in half. So there's how, you know, Black artist appropriating a style associated with whiteness, a white artist appropriating a black style, right? Like that, if you have that as a conversation about art, it seems more fluid, yes. right? Because it's sort of like black people watch things that black people make and that everyone else makes. And it's sort of ideas, are ideas, and they flow however they flow. Right. The second half of the conversation is about money. Yes. Right. So if you're looking at something like Atlanta and you're looking at what are Donald Glover and Hiram Mariah's influences, 
you know, I I look at Donald Glover and think he can appropriate whatever he wants because in the grand scheme of justice, in the grand scheme of American race relations, the score ultimately favors white people. Right. Right. So it, that's what makes it less complicated. Whereas Bruno Mars, I feel like what Saren Sensei is getting at and what Bruno's detractors are getting at is that no matter how well-intentioned Bruno may be when he makes this music and when he talks about Teddy Riley, it, they people perceive that Bruno Mars is taking money out of someone's mouth. Yes. And you know what I mean? So that's where the fact that cultural appropriation is really a conversation about money I think that's why it seems like the standards are are uneven and kind of crass. But then you have people like Beyonce, upfront, huge fan. <laughs> Please do not come after me. But she literally steals. Yeah, she literally. Ste- I mean, I mean, just this weekend, as far as I know, this week there was a Beyonce Jay Z image that is a reference to a Senegalese movie, Tukibuki, and it's like. I don't think that the makers of Tsukibuki from the 70s are getting money for the fact that Beyonce and Jay-Z have very deliberately copped this image that I bet you if the image had never made it to film Twitter, we would not have noticed was an image that was deliberately copped. But that movie in itself is also a movie that cops the style of the French New Wave in order to tell an African story. Like these things are, these circuits of influence are complicated. If we do want to make it about money, I think that we got to talk about power, et cetera, as not only a thing that black people don't have, (laughs) you know, that black artists don't have. I I just, I guess this conversation has always felt very sloppy to me, but it's always felt sloppy still in a way that does not make me want to come down hard on Bruno Mars. I don't want to act like we weren't hip to New Jack Swing. Like we didn't do right by New Jack Swing. Like this kid is only coming around and doing right by it and getting wide attention. I don't care that white people didn't care about boys to men. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't because we did. So what does it matter? Yeah, there's it, one point. My favorite part of Sarah Sensei's critique is when she says, Bobby Brown didn't get an album of the year. It's like, but Bobby Brown, I mean, okay. that, it, that's the thing. I'm trying to envision this world in which, like, everything is more just, it's a sort of alternative universe for Bobby Brown one album of right. the year. It's like, no, he didn't. Herbie Hancock did. <sighs> So, you know, like, I, I don't know. I don't I don't know. All I can say about Bruno Mars is that if you're if your whole point of contention with this is the sanctity of black artists. And meanwhile, all of those black artists are pouring out of the woodwork to be like, nah, he's good. Like, I'm I'm trust me. I right. got it's mine. fine. It's fine. That's all. That's my dream world. My yeah. dream world is a world in which we got to talk about Uptown Funk. And this will be the last I say. But it's like to me, the sign that Bruno was good was Mark Ronson featuring Bruno Mars, Uptown Funk, which was Bruno's really big, like, this guy is a star now record. Yes. That that record interpolates the hook from Trinidad James, all gold everything. One hit wonder, Trinidad James. I actually love Trinidad James, but one hit wonder, Trinidad James finances fell to shit after all gold everything. He got booted from his Def Jam record deal, but when Uptown Funk came up, he had a producer credit on it. He had points on that song. He was making money off that song. Bruno Mars and Mark Ronson did right by that man. Yes. And that to me is the vision for what it means for there to be healthy 
cultural exchange and healthy cultural appropriation in pop music. Absolutely. All right. Well, having solved Bruno Mars <laughs> and every other cultural appropriation debate in the history of pop music, I'm Justin Charity. I'm Cameron Collins. And we'll see you again in two weeks on Damage Control. Damage Control.